Luke 15, verses 11 to 24. Father God, I pray that as we come to your word, you'd be pleased to bless us, moved by the Holy Spirit, we pray, and, and shine a light into each of our hearts as we consider what it's like to come home to you. Amen. Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, but here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms round him and kissed him. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May that be a blessing to you in, in some tiny way. What does home conjure up for you? What does, what does home look like? What does home smell like? What does it sound like? It's quite individual, isn't it? Uh, I find myself thinking, for, for me, well, home, home is Haringey now. Home is London, and I want to stay here a long time. But I still a bit of me goes back to childhood. Do you find that? Uh, a bit of me goes back. I can, I can hear my mum listening to the Archers on Radio 4 at 7 p.m. You know, that, I can hear that theme tune. And whoa, I'm back at home. I can smell, there's a certain, I had a German grandma and she used to make this Christmas biscuit, a Pfeffernusa, and if I get a whiff, I'm like, I'm back there or, or straight away. Or um, if I go anywhere near West Oxfordshire where I grew up, you know, it's like this little compass in me is just pointing towards home. You know what I mean? You've got your own version of that. There's a problem with it, which is that um, home doesn't last, does it? I mean, in my own case, my, my parents got divorced and that house that I'm imagining is gone, it's sold. The marriage is gone. Uh, my grandma died, so she didn't make those biscuits anymore. I don't really want to be in the same house as my mum. I love my mum, but I don't really want to be around every day when she's listening to Radio 4. I just, you know, life moves on. And, and home can't last. Even the most, the most perfect adult home, you've built this perfect home in adult life, you think, oh, this is great, this is exactly how I want it. Even then it can't last because of health or relationships or situations that have to change. You see what I mean? So even the most perfect home, it can't be forever. Jesus talks about coming home 
in this famous, famous story in the Bible, in Luke chapter 15, the story of the lost son, sometimes called the story of the prodigal son, it, it, it has an amazing power to show people who are new to Christianity what it's all about. It's like just suddenly really clear seawater. You know, really, you want to go on holiday, and, oh, that's such clear water. It's like you can see right to the bottom of this story in very few words. But it also has an amazing power. If you've been a Christian for a while, you can, you can come to this story and go, oh, this is so refreshing. This is reminding me of the heart of it all. Do you know what I mean? So I long for that for if, whichever situation you find yourself in today. And Jesus tells this story. He, he, he made it up. This famous, famous bit of literature. And I'm sure he tells this story because he knew that in every human being is this disconnectedness from home. He, he knew, and this is the Bible's whole story, that in every one of us there's this alienation, this lostness, this, this being away from home, which means there's this little compass within us pointing towards something and kind of would like to get back there, even though we can't get back there. And we'll explore a little bit more about what that all means. How, how could a human being, how could every human being come, come home according to Christ? Anyone seen the film Ratatouille? Some of you? Okay. I like that film. And uh, there's this, there's this um, little, little chef, uh, and there's this nasty restaurant critic called Anton Ego, and he's a Frenchman who loves fine dining. And do you remember at the end of the film, if you've seen it, he's ready to judge cynically little chef's cooking, but he makes him this ratatouille, and a Anton Ego takes a mouthful of this simple French ratatouille, and <gasps> suddenly he's back at home, and he's back in his mother's cottage in the, in the French countryside. And who knew? He'd, he'd sort of been cut off and kind of bitter all these years, but he just wanted to go home. Maybe that's you even this morning. The context of this story um, is actually, we weren't, didn't read it out today, but you have in your, your Bibles there, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And those two groups are very important for understanding the story. Do you see, you've got the tax collectors and the sinners. They were gathering around to hear Jesus. And they represent the younger son in the story. And then the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they represent the older brother in the story. Sorry if I'm teaching you to suck eggs, but it's kind of important for this story. So tax collectors, they were the collaborators with the Roman army. The sinners, they were the sort of notorious, immoral people in town. So that's one type of people. They represent the wild living younger son. And then you've got the Pharisees, the really strict religious Jewish types in those days, and the teachers of the law, they passed on the strict rules to others. And they represent the very strict, straight-laced older brother who we're going to focus on next week. So we'll talk about younger brother this week, older brother next week, because it's, it's just too good a story. I sort of wanted to spread it out and look at each character in turn. I think um, it is often called the, the lost son or the prodigal son, this story. Really, I think if I could redesign this, the, this, the traditional title, I'd probably say, how about the story of the two lost sons? Right? Because there are two sons and they're both lost. They, they, they both need to be corrected by Jesus. If anything, the story is directed at the older son because that's where the story ends and climaxes. That's who he was addressing in the Pharisees and teachers of the law. So how about the, the story of the two lost sons? Because that puts us in mind that there's two different stories, two different characters Jesus is focusing on. I put on your sermon sheet at three circles, and it's my intention in the next um, seven days, this week and next, we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at the three main characters in the story. There's the father, there's the, the younger son, and there's the oldest son. And today I just want to focus on the younger son and the father. Make sense? There are, of course, I think in every culture, younger brothers and 
older brothers. Do you know what I mean? There is a sort of um, younger brother, wild living type, bit of a rebel who delights just to break some rules and go off and live life their own way. I think that's kind of a temperamental thing often. People just are a bit more like that. I had a lecturer at seminary who said, oh, there's always, in every cohort of people I've ever taught, there's always policemen and there's always rebels. And you know, they're just wired different ways. And so the younger son, he's a rebel. And in most cultures, you get slightly more buttoned down people, people who tend to keep the rules a bit better and they, they're a bit more akin to the older brother. You know what I mean? Maybe you know which, which you are personally. Which side is Jesus on? It's an interesting question. Because you might expect him to be on the religious side, but then he's not really buttoned down and strict in the way everyone expected, is he? I think both sides would like to claim Jesus, but he does a fascinating thing in this story and throughout history, which is effectively say, guys, you're both lost. You, you both need to come back to God, and you both need to come into the feast. So let's look. we'll just look at two characters today. Uh, first of all, the younger son. Verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. I read a while ago that there are basically two types of families. There's a type of family that that can talk freely about inheritance, and then there's the type of family who can't. You know what I mean? Uh, I wonder which is yours is. I think some families it's just taboo. Don't Don't you dare talk about your parents' deaths and the money that might change hands when they die. And other families, I've, I've, I've seen them go, ah, it's fine, you know, we just talk about that kind of stuff all the time. This younger son is very rude and impertinent because he, not only does he talk about it, he says, give it to me now, which is the prelude to their broken relationship. The father's wealth would have been all tied up in land in those days. It seems he was a, a landowner. And so imagine that, everything you've worked for, I guess if, if you're lucky enough to own, own a house, then this, he's saying, can you please, you know, Sell, sell some of your house and give me the money. Or it's all the relationships that he's tried to build up with his children. It's everything he's tried to work for in life. And the son says, cash that in now and give it to me. I mean, I find it hard to be patient when a child doesn't eat a meal that's been cooked for them. But imagine staying, the, staying calm like this father in the face of this. Give me your inheritance now. But look, we're trying, to be, we're trying to see the world through the younger son's eyes, first of all. So he wants to travel, right? He wants to see the world. He, he wants to discover who he really is. And maybe he's never gone beyond the local town and the marketplace. Plenty of us have had that itch before. So what does he do? Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. All the father's land, any livestock that he'd sold to realize this transaction is just converted into cash. So I imagine this boy probably had piles of cash. And what did he do? He got a donkey, and the donkey's saddlebags are just stuffed with coins, silver and gold coins. And he's, he's going down the path, probably not, not looking over his shoulder to say goodbye, because he, he knows this is burning his bridges. This is, this is done with his family now. But he must feel very free, don't you think? Very, very free to walk off down the track into the town, beyond the town, towards the big city, I expect, in a different, distant country, feeling very light. He's thrown off the hierarchy, the patriarchy, and the conformity. He's thrown off his family, yes, but he's okay about that, because life is for living. One of my favorite songs is uh, Miley Cyrus's Party in the USA. <laughs> don't judge me, don't judge me. I'm entitled to listen to the music I want to listen to. 
And uh, it tells the story of Miley Cyrus. She goes from Nashville to LA. And uh, it tells the story very beautifully of when she arrives and she gets off the plane at LAX. And you know, she, she starts to party. And she's, you know, by the end of the song, she's sort of dancing on the roof of the taxi cab. And she's having a great time. A little, little echo there of the, the, the prodigal son as she goes from small town to big city. And she's loving it. This boy has a great time. He makes a lot of friends, which is, very, which is actually quite easy to make friends, isn't it? If you're loaded and you just buy drinks or drugs, then you can make a lot of friends very quickly. But then comes a day when he goes to buy another round and suddenly the bartender says, I'm sorry, your card's been declined. Oh, what? Yeah, yeah, there's no money. Oh. And then comes a mixture of bad luck and bad judgment, right? So his bad judgment, he squandered all the money. He just, he just spent it on food and drink and clothes by the sounds of it. And um, there's a hint of prostitution later in the story. But then bad luck. I mean, there's a severe famine in that country. So he just gets, oh gosh, you know, life is suddenly incredibly hard. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So he's, this is a Jewish origin story, right? So we're imagining a Jewish young man and the only job he can get is feeding pigs. You get the, the problem? Kosher diet, feeding pigs. Probably by this stage he's so hungry he would actually eat the pig if he could eat it just to keep himself from starvation. But he's not allowed to do that because then he'd lose his job and then he'd have no money. He's not even allowed to eat the little berries, the, the bitter pods that the, the pigs get fed in a famine because then he'd have no job and then he wouldn't have no money at all. So, so no one cares for him. No one's saying, hey, you look really lean and hungry. Let's give you something to eat. He's so far from home. The turning point comes then, as I imagine him sitting in the mud, the dry, cracked mud next to the pig trough. And you can tell it's the turning point because the action really slows down and Jesus starts to tell you what's going on in, in the boy's head. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Just notice with me, okay, we're looking at the younger son. His reasoning is based on the father's character, right? It doesn't make sense to go home unless you have a generous dad. Because if you've got a mean dad who's not, no, never going to show you any grace, don't go home. It's gonna, you're just going to have a long journey and you're going to be as, as bad off there as you are here. But he, because he knows, he's got an inkling, he's got a distant memory of what God is like, he says, I'm going to go home because I have a feeling it's better over there than it is here. See? So it's based on God's character there already. And repentance is like that. We can only come back to God if you have a hint that he's going to accept you. It doesn't really begin with me thinking, oh, I've got a really good idea. I'll, I'll, I'll see if there's any favor in heaven. It begins with God. And then just one other thing about the younger son. This is what sin is like. So the Bible gives lots of different pictures of sin, but I think perhaps there is none more so vivid than this. Jesus is building up this story so that we've got an idea of what sin is like. Because sin says, Father, I don't want you, but I want your stuff. Or you might say, um, give me the good stuff, but I don't want any of that God stuff. And sin does that time and again, right? If you, if you know the, the Bible story, then it begins with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They say, can I have that tasty fruit, but I don't want to walk with God. 
Or you go fast forward to King Solomon, and he knew he had the law and he had wisdom, but he eventually says, oh, can I have all those women and that gold and those, those fast vehicles, but, but I don't need God anymore. Or you get to Judas, famously in the Bible. Do you want Emmanuel, the, the, the living gods in human flesh, or do you want 30 pieces of silver? Well, do you know what? I'll take the money. And so time and again, human beings make this choice, and maybe that's familiar to you. Could I, could I have the good stuff, but without the God stuff, please? This is what sin is like. It, it, puts us in, it wants to put us in control. We say, I'll, I'll, I'll just control the flow of resources. Give me that stuff, because I know best. And that's what the younger son is doing. But now turn with me in your mind's eye. I want to look finally at the father. I want, to sh- I want to look together at what the father figure is like in this story. And he is amazing. So verse 20, you got that? But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, Sarah and I have a picture that hangs in our kitchen, and um, it is this. And I love it. I just think, in a picture, it manages to convey so much of this story. Can you see Big House? Can you see uh, a figure in a robe just running here? And then as the path goes down, there's this um, forlorn-looking fella at the bottom. And with no words, you know, there's no words, there's no caption. I love, I love just hanging it on the wall and sometimes someone stops and looks at it and they either say, what's that about? Or they say, oh. And in this picture, Jesus manages to convey so much of what the Father is doing, the, the picture Jesus paints. Here he is, he's running down the track. When, when he was still a long way off, the Father saw him and ran and threw his arms around him. In that culture, you would... you would never get the the father and the family running. Running was for children or for servants, but he runs. Probably the father figure would never show their legs because it's dishonorable, you know, in in that kind of old school way. I don't wear shorts, you know, you get to people like that. Um, But he would always have worn a long dignified robe. His honor has been um, broken by what the younger son did to him and everybody in the village is going to know about it. So for him, for him to say, I don't care what the gossips say. I don't care if anyone sees me running down the track. I'm just going to run to my son. He's, he's saying, just, I care about my son more than all of that stuff. And he pays the price in his own honor. And it's amazing the way he, he eschews all the patriarchy and all the norms in order to throw himself upon his son. The Greek is literally, he, he fell upon his neck. You know, where it says he threw his arm around him. He just fell upon his neck heavily, planting kisses on his son. I mean, I imagine, let me, let me put this here. You know, the son's prepared this speech. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. But the, the father just interrupts in verse 21. So I imagine it's a bit muffled, you know. Um, he, he gets a little bit of his speech out. And then I can't, father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your... And the father interrupts and says, quick, servants, quick. Bring a ring, bring a, bring a robe, bring the sandals and kill a fattened calf. And they're all marks of honor. I mean, the kiss was the first mark of honor because the, the patriarch would have kissed people as they came into the house as a sign that says, you're welcome here. You know, you're my, you're my equal. You're welcome in my house. But he kisses him as if to say, you're welcome home. He says, bring the best robe, literally the first robe, which by rights belonged to him. He says, bring the, bring the robe and clothe my son. He says, put a ring on his finger, possibly including a, um, a signet, ring so that he can work in the family household again 
He says, bring sandals on his feet as he looks at his barefoot, dirty son. He says, bring shoes so that my son can be dressed again. And bring the fattened calf, which is probably the, the crowning moment of it all, because in those days, meat was pretty rare. Like, you were not eating meat in every meal. Meat was for special occasions. And the fattened calf, that was for your big feasts, because if you kill a cow, that feeds a lot of people, and you have to eat it reasonably quickly. So that's like a, a whole village kind of meal. So if he's saying, Fill the ca- the fattened, kill the fattened calf, then he's suddenly planning this big, big feast. Isn't it amazing the way the father does it? I lost a son, and I think if I could bring that son home again, there would be no party big enough to be sufficient. And you see the heart of the father here. You, you, you see how much he loves the son. And he didn't really care about the stuff. I don't care about the wealth. I don't care what the other people say. I just love you. I'm so glad to have you home. I read one pastor who pointed out that the first word out of the father's mouth in the whole story, anybody, can you tell me what it is? Quick, yeah, verse uh, 22. Quick, isn't that lovely? And the pastor just pointed out, isn't, doesn't that just shine a light on God's grace? God's grace is quick. His, his kindness is quick. His generosity is quick. There's no grudging slowness, glacial speed about God's generosity. It's quick. And all this is amazing because it's so much better than the boy imagined. You remember him in, sitting in the mud in the distant country in the famine saying, maybe I'll get a bit of work as a day laborer. Maybe I'll be able to eke out a living. And here he is. He hasn't done a, he hasn't done a minute's work. He hasn't even got out his pre planned speech. And the father is saying, bring the ring, bring the robe, let's have a party and celebrate. It's all grace. It's all quick grace. And you know, when we looked at the younger son, we said, what is sin like? So now let's just look at the father and say, what is God like? Think about that with me for a moment. Because Jesus is painting this picture of God, the father. And I want you to see his kind, he is forgiving, and he is ready to welcome a wild sinner home. There is no sin that is a match for God's grace. So we said sin is like... um, don't give me the God stuff, give me the good stuff. But it turns out all along when you see God, that God is the good stuff. You see what I mean? God is, because if God is the unchanging good in the universe, if, and, and indeed the source of everything else that I consider good, then God is the good stuff. God is the thing that if I can access him, if I can come home to him, then that is goodness. And time and again in the Bible, that's the story. And time and again in my life, I seem to keep realizing this. God is the only unchanging, solidly good thing in the universe. So coming home means coming home to God. Now some people say at this point, aha, well this, this, this is the kind of theology I was actually hoping for. Because this means that you don't have to really do anything, it just means that God is going to save everybody. Because he's there, he's waiting for the younger son. It's a kind of universalism. There's a theological word for it. You know, um, nothing really required on the younger son's part. He just gets welcomed into the father's embrace. But that ignores two things. Um, Firstly, the fact that not everybody does come home. So the younger son has actually expressed repentance and he's got up and he's gone the other way and come home. And secondly, it ignores how costly forgiveness is, which is something we'll look at next week. Um, It's so costly uh, for God to forgive sinners and he bears the cost. We'll, We'll talk about that next week. God is radically generous, though, at the beginning and middle and the end of this amazing story. He welcomes the wild sinner home. 
home. That's where we started off, and that's where we'll finish. And um, remember I said the Bible, the Bible tells this great story of coming home? Ever since Genesis in the Garden of Eden, it's this, this great origin story of where we all came from. It's where the human race started off. It's where humans were once at home in this paradise garden, Eden. It's a bit like Kew Gardens, but you don't have to pay loads of money to get in, and you can live there, and God is there. It's just amazing. But ever since then, our ancestors have said, don't, don't give me the God stuff, just give me the good stuff. And we've been living away from him. What does that mean? It means if you've been living away from God for ages, then you can still come home. Otherwise, why did Jesus tell this story if he didn't have in mind you and people like you? You may be a younger son or you may know a younger son, but he is ready to welcome you. Can I try and prove it to you a little further? If the word of scripture is not enough, can I, can I, can I tell you two stories from London which um, show me again how this works in practice? We're part of the Co-Mission Church Planting Network and um, every Christmas we have a little party and we celebrate what God has done. And last Christmas these two stories were shared and I, I share them with you with permission. These are people who live in London. Firstly, Mark. Mark is divorced. He has children. He had no interest in God but he was attracted by a Christian colleague at work who encouraged him to come to church near where he lives. And Mark came along to church for the first time as an adult on Good Friday 2022, and he was blown away by how different it was to what he'd expected. He heard Isaiah 53 explained, and he was overcome with guilt, and he wept during the sermon until he heard of Christ giving his life for us, and he prayed a prayer of repentance that night. He left feeling overwhelmed with joy, came back on Easter Sunday saying, I've never felt a love like this before, so I've come back to see if it's true. Since then, he is clearly reborn by the Holy Spirit and he's evangelizing his bewildered family and friends and work colleagues. Isn't that amazing? Came home. Or secondly, there's Hazel. She says, during my life as a prostitute, as soon as I had money, I used to buy crack to smoke. I was smoking 150 to 200 pounds of crack a day. <clears throat> it was like hell, the mess, the prostitution. My room was a crack den with just me in it. One day I'd so had enough of everything, I threw myself on the floor and I was begging God, saying, please God, help me to get out of this. A couple of days later, a, a book came through the letterbox. It was about a prostitute woman who had found God and my sister had sent it to me. And at the back was lots of different information about other people who had, who had been saved. One of them was a former Hell's Angel who lived in London. He was called Mick. So I rang him up to tell him I needed help. He told me to meet him for coffee, so I did. He then took me to a lady called Jackie's flat. When I got to Jackie's flat, the kitchen was flooding because of a broken washing machine. But she stopped trying to sort out her washing machine and she sat down and she prayed over me. She asked me if I wanted to give my life to Jesus. I said yes. And I said the prayer with her. It was like a big weight had lifted off me. I still had money in my pocket to score drugs on the way home, but all the desire for them had gone. Instead, on the way home, I ran into the kebab shops telling everyone that Jesus loved them. I got involved with Jackie's church and for the first time in my life, I had peace. Jesus had got me out of this mess. What a wonderful story. I mean, what a wonderful church. I mean, <laughs> to have someone who stops fixing their washing machine just to, just to pray with you and, and lead you home. Maybe you need to come home to God. Maybe it's been a long time 
Maybe it's been a very stinky pigsty, but maybe he's calling you home. You don't have to live there. You could just come home. Coming home to God doesn't mean you have to embrace a starchy, self-righteous religion. You don't have to do it the, other, the way the other religious people you've seen do it. You just have to come home to God. We'll talk about that next week. But he is gracious and he's quick to embrace you. Or maybe this is like a mini home coming from you. you, you live, you've come home to God. You, you live with him, but this, is, this just makes you think, and why would I be anywhere else? Why would I go anywhere else? Why would I leave this home where my father is. So I'm going to pray a prayer, and um, it's very short and simple. I've, to- I've told you before, I think. Uh, it goes, sorry, thank you, please. And that's a basic prayer for coming home to God. Maybe it's for you today, or maybe it's a prayer you can take as a takeaway, and you can, you can take it to someone else and tell them how to pray it. I'll leave a pause at the end of every line, and um, you can pray it quietly in your heart to God. Let's pray. Father God, I'm sorry for my sin. Father, I've often wanted your stuff, but not you. I hear that you are ready to forgive me. Lord, you are the unchanging good thing in my life. Thank you. Please send your Holy Spirit and help me to know you as your child. Amen.